Welcome to another week of Black Atlantic. We are here live at Music New Brunswick Week. Uh, by the time you're airing this, these lovely festivities will be over, but we really wanted to use this opportunity to interview none other than Tondaway McCarthy. Tondaway, how are you today? Things are going well, things are going well. Amazing, the, the honest truth is uh, Hillary and I have been talking about interviewing you for since season one and it yep. hasn't happened. And the fact that it's happening in person is, is so amazing because uh, as you know, we don't get a lot of opportunity to interview in person. Or be together. And uh, you know, due to our work in Fredericton this summer for Summer Solsa, uh, that is kind of what made this happen. So yeah. it's, it's kind of kismet in a really neat way. So yeah, thanks yeah. again for being on the show. Um, and we're definitely excited because I believe we've interviewed you before in the past on another show and I've gotten to interview you for Buy Black so we are familiar with your story but we definitely wanted to you know put it on our platform especially since we will shout out a little bit you put us on one of your platforms earlier today that will be coming out into, yeah. um, and we're definitely going to get into that because I have tons of questions. Um, do you want to start? Yeah first off Tondaway why don't you tell the listeners just a who you are. Tell us about yourself. Who is Tondaway? Well, uh, Tondaway, Jelani McCarthy. My mother gave me those two names in the Afrocentric way. When she was in labor with me, she just wanted her young boy to know that he would be loved. So the first name, Tondaway, means beloved. The second name, I was a nine pound baby. So Jelani means mighty. So I am the loved one who is Mighty McCarthy. I'm a seventh generation African New Brunswicker. My family traces its history back to hundreds of years ago here in New Brunswick. And a spoken word poet, community organizer, and really just my heart is in making sure opportunities are dispersed fairly and equally among the people of the African diaspora. And that is my whole life to do that through the lens of poetry and story. That's absolutely amazing. Um, we've gotten to throughout the, I, I would say, I think three years that we've been doing this, see the amazing work of your mother, who you mentioned, Mary Louise McCarthy Brandt, who we've both interviewed several times. Dr. Uh, Mary yes. Louise McCarthy Brandt. Yeah. Yes, all Thank of the you. amazing accolades. I got to list them in the most recent article where I got to learn all of them, the bachelor, the honorary doctorate, the other doctorate, like accolades, so many. Um, but it's also been such an honor getting to know so much about you. Um, and since we spoke a little bit about your mom, I am curious, like knowing her energy, how did that spark the way that you go about this sort of black, I don't want to say reconnaissance because we should be known, but like revolution in that black empowerment and like how did that sort of lay the foundation for who you are now? I would say when I was a child, mom brought me along and all of her advocacy work and being with community members and all of the other families, mom has always been a people person and connected intergenerationally to other black families. She always puts making those connections first and finding common ground with anyone from the African diaspora. So being her son, I was just always taking it along and I hated it. I always remember she'd say, oh, we're just gonna stop for a cup of coffee. And I'd be like, that cup of coffee lasts three hours. Like, so I, I was never a fan of it as a young, boy but now as you know an adult i look back at those social resources i was able to be connected to and when i started digging into my identity as a black man in new brunswick and seeing all the people i've been connected to it's supercharged my path to find my identity define it in a way that empowers me 
and use those opportunities that I'm able to get to help grow and develop anyone's dreams from the African diaspora. So I, I'd say she laid the groundwork for me by dragging me by the neck to way too many coffee meets when I was a kid. Okay, so like, yeah, outside of your experience with your, your mother and the activist work she did, I always like to ask, just to get a kind of a, a picture in my mind about life in Atlantic Canada, um, previously to, to now, what was life like growing up in Fredericton for you? Can you share some of your experiences? Um, great, perfect, fun, well, not great, just paint the picture. I published a memoir, Social Oblivion, Raised Black in yes. Canada, yeah. and one of the main things was just the racism in the public education system. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. We talk about erasure a lot with people from the African diaspora, and it's not until you come in contact with individuals who have no idea of what blackness even is, other than the harmful stereotypes and entertainment. A story I like to tell is prom in middle school. All of these children were dressing up and they were talking about renting limos mm. and getting tuxedos and fabulous dresses. And I've always, I was so excited as a young boy to be like, okay, what is that for me? And I've always had an afro. I always, you know, like to have my hair out. And I knew that if I wanted to look professional, if I wanted to look like my version of my best self, cornrows was the way to do right. it. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out of the car with my date, for this prom, I was looking great, I dressed up nice. Everyone started pointing and laughing at me and mm -hmm. said I looked like Snoop Dogg, I looked like a gangster. Instantly, the stereotype of black poverty mm -hmm. was placed on me. And when we were all playing dress up, these are all 13, 14, 15 year old kids pretending like they were in the upper income class. We were pretending to be wealthy and affluent. All of us were pretending, but my identity from African diaspora, when I put on our culture's elite, our royalty, they still viewed that as not only a stereotype of poverty, but as silly and misplaced. I did not belong among the white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired mm -hmm. students who were wearing the tuxedos and the dresses and came in the limos, even though I came as correct as them. They had their hair wonderfully done up and all that. But when my hair and I'm styled up, I cannot be placed in upper society or as affluent. I have to be placed as entertainer, as gangster, as someone who just came from the block from, you know, selling illegal drugs or I'm here to just do illicit things from the right. stereotype. It's that story, it sticks with me. And I've, I've never gotten cornrows after that because it, it just stuck in my head that if I dress up and pay more attention to how I look, it doesn't, I will still be defined by everyone around me. And I just, it just always left a bad taste in my mouth. So that's a story I'd like to share. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Uh, you know, like racial trauma isn't always like one big event like you described. Sometimes it's, it's the combination of multiple different events that builds a lifetime of trauma. And now you can't even associate, you'd look great in cornrows. And, and mm. now you find you'll never be able to, where cornrows without remembering that trauma of kids pointing mm -hmm. and laughing and maybe some of them thought it was cool, maybe it's just a lack of uh, exposure to the fact that this is a very accepted thing and it's been part of our culture for hundreds of years, probably going back to Africa. Um, but yeah, I felt that. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, as we know, when we're doing our hair, it takes hours and hours of braiding. Like it's, for those of you who don't know in the white audience, like we're putting in half a day to look our best. 
and uh, to just immediately be met with laughter and ridicule and not being made seriously. You know, we all have that nightmare, everyone's gonna laugh at you. Well, that actually happened to me. I actually have footage of it, of because oh. they had uh, they were recording the prom, and so there's a clip of people laughing and saying, "Oh, he's a big gangster," and uh, it's. And now what was the rest of your night? What was the rest of your night like? I I couldn't I. That was a big night for you. Yeah. Wasn't well, and I must say that my date said, "Don't pay attention to it." She was great, and uh, you know, I was able to have fun later, but it was in processing it throughout the rest of my, you know, educational term that that kind of, it just adds. Yeah. It adds, it's a weight on your spirit and just another weighted blanket gets put on again and again and again. So when I started unpacking for my memoir, all of these things had to be mm -hmm. thrown off just to give myself a sense of lightness. Of course. Okay. I'm curious because I think that we've talked a lot about the the deep rich black history of St. John mm -hmm. and I know a little bit about the blackness let's say of Moncton what is the black Fredericton community like because I I see you and Gary Weeks is in the room and so many of the the cohort you have as such staples in the community mm -hmm. but now we're talking about your prom and not not to say how far back that is although I know it's not that far back I'm wondering what the black community was like then if there were a lot of black people in your school if you felt like you had a lot of black friends that could like support you because when I went to school I was one of five black kids in my high school felt like there was no one to really support or understand what I was going through and I know now we've got this great community but I think it's taken time immigration migration so I'm really curious what was what was Frederick black Fredericton like I I didn't have many black friends there were a few there were many black families I have to say when I was growing up but I was never uh part of that group mm -hmm. it was so weird we talk about like outer and interpolitics being I, not a hat i put on myself but i'd classify as a black nerd you know i was watching <laughs> batman the animated series and reading books and you know playing video games so that frame of blackness didn't fit well with all the other black students who just had different hats because there's when we talk about blackness we assume that everything is interconnected mm -hmm. just because we might share a little extra melanin yep. that's not true so there wasn't I wasn't able to find common ground with other black students when I was going through the education system and to be honest if oppression and shared racial trauma that we're sharing this foxhole together was the only thing we had. I don't think those would be genuine relationships to build something where yeah. we could support each other. You don't want to create an echo chamber of suffering. Mm -hmm. So We talk about that all the time. Like, black people come from all over the world, and we might have different cultures, tastes, music, foods, ideas, opinions. And, you know, the only thing we all have in common is we want to be treated like people and as equals. Yeah. And that is, the, like, the unifying thing between us in a lot of cases. And mm -hmm. it's okay to be different. You don't have to fit a mold. You can be whoever you want, and that doesn't make you not black. Um, can you talk to us a bit about the project you're working on now with Gary Weeks, uh, if you don't, if you're allowed to? And, and before and then you we'll get... go back and talk oh. about the things you've, the amazing things you've accomplished in the past few yeah, years. Yeah, I well. definitely want to hear the list of accolades, but I know that the current project you're working on is so cool, and we did tease to it um, the other day when we did our talk at the library because we want people to know that this amazing work is coming well, out yeah, on your behalf. You. Yeah, we're, we're plugging you. <laughs> so yeah. now plug yourself. <laughs> All right. So you heard a little bit about my story 
and just the the terrible awful things i had to go through in both rural and urban new brunswick and one of my major drivers is to not have that happen to anyone else and when i was looking through to find something to search through my past i was brought the blacks in new brunswick book my mom gave to me it was a history book by william spray a professor who's passed from uh saint thomas i saw that book was 50 years out of print i contacted the university and they we helped get it reprint now the cover was terrible this very starving looking black face over the imprint of the province so i partnered with Carrie Nash, black graphic designer, Jennifer Dow, cousin, black historian and genealogist, and we put actual pictures of black families on top of the Blacks in New Brunswick history book. That led into how many black legacy families have been here since New Brunswick cut off themselves from Nova Scotia and became their own province? How many people were on the ground floor of this province mm -hmm. since then? And the number is over 40 black legacy families wow. wow and instantly i said i want 15 of them so we can showcase them and prove that we are still here because too often even across canada there was a history book that came out doing black history from every province new brunswick was left out even among black academics the New Brunswick story, even though we have the most northern point of the Underground Railroad, even though we have some people like Edward Mitchell Bannister, an international like visual artist, or Abraham Beverly Walker, who was the first Canadian black person to own a magazine, and like mm -hmm. it was well received, we don't celebrate any of our excellence in the black community. And so I pitched to Canada Council, a national arts funding body, to be able to pay for Gary and several other people to go to these families. Yeah. And when they said yes, that's what we've been doing. And the original idea was for a book that partnered with the public archives and we're going to get the actual documents. Uh, somewhat historian went on CBC and said that slavery didn't happen. So these are all points that motivated me and I was just like, how do you call yourself a historian when that's the whole point anyway? <laughs> There's tons of documents. Yes. Uh, Dr. Amani Whitfield has an entire book just cataloging slavery in the Maritimes. Wow. We went through that, went through the public archives, we get the documents on one page, and my poetry is on the other page. And if you had a minute later on, I'll grab my phone and read one. Love that. And uh, that, so the poems bring people in while the documents affirm what the history is. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that we can't just have it from the perspective of these organizations. Whenever the organizations tell the black story, it's always from a point of suffering, mm. or we meet their standard of excellence mm. through the Olympics, or through doing something great. They don't share the everyday stories, as mm. we were talking about when we were discussing earlier. So I said, I'd like a little bit more money, Canada Council, and if you do that, 15 black families were going to go to their homes, we're going to get a group photo, we're going to take portrait shots of everyone that was there, we're going to scan in documents. I have had to scan documents in an old folks home, bathroom, to preserve the history, and we're going to put those on the next page just to show that not only, like, we want to tell the history from the family's perspective. 
and uh, that's what we've been doing. We're 12 families in right now, and big news, we've been confirmed for the Beaverbrook Art Gallery in yeah. Fredericton, New Brunswick, International yeah. Art Gallery for July 2025 to November 2025, five months. And our idea for this exhibition is to take all of the 50 gigs worth of visual data of just all the different shades and wonders of blackness and to just cover the orientation gallery so that no one can enter the gallery, the Beaverbrook Art Gallery, without a hug from our heritage and to just visually see this is what the history is. And we've also partnered with King's Landing to get actual historical uh, artifacts from the early black loyalists that they've preserved to this day. So you, we're not, we're not going to be ignored. And we want to tour this all across Canada. So if you are a museum or if you are an art gallery, 2025 to 2030, my team's ready. National Art Gallery, AGO, if you're listening. Yeah. Hello, hello. And it's, it's, <laughs> the project has changed my DNA in being able to see these multiple generations still going out and playing outside, still having fun. We say all the time after every shoot, it's like we're bringing a family reunion because when do we take group family photos? Mm -hmm. It's weddings or funerals. Yeah. And so this project, when we bring people together and we have all these photo albums out, kids are seeing what their parents look like, what their grandparents looked like when they were young. People are laughing. We had one, the Diamond family, we shot them in the rain. They went outside saying, no, we want to do it. And the grandfather, who's hard of seeing, was out there with the biggest smile on his face, just around all of his family wow. from great-grandparent yeah. it has it has changed how I feel about family and New Brunswick in mm -hmm. general because if you take any heritage whether it be Irish Asian Acadian British and you take 12 of those families that's a large enough sample size for just Atlantic Canadian living yeah. and we found something just truly amazing in this project so we can't wait to share it with the world it's incredible um, at the at the AGO, not that I don't think that anyone's doing anything similar to this, but they've done a few things that are sort of centered around photos of black joy and then photos of of uh, black families from a few African countries and had them in there. And there's not a single time that I've seen them and I haven't cried at just the fact that like black people were able to exist in their comfort, in their joy, in their happiness. And this idea that like white people don't believe that it should be, there's some, not all, <laughs> white people believe that it shouldn't be that way or can't fathom black joy. And I think to hear that like, first of all, that there's 40 legacy families to me is, I don't know if I think that it's astounding, but it's it's a very powerful number. And to know that you're like actually capturing that type of joy and happiness and narrative of family is so enlightening and, and positive and um i am curious unless you have a question nope. i have another one nope. i'm just curious out of the 40 legacy families just so i'm very like clear there are 40 families who who've been here and are and are obviously still here were there any that you encountered that you know the ancestors or descendants have have moved away and you've tried to outreach that like you know they're in Ontario because to me I think that when I think about New Brunswick I do think about the fact that I've left and some people you know might leave for opportunity because of racism for other reasons but the fact that you found 15 that were here and are still here almost surprises me so I'm curious if in your research if without spoiling anything how like what else did you is there anything else that you found <laughs> there's no spoilers to this project and I would just say that uh, people leaving New Brunswick in my research, because my poetry is themed on the actual history, 
that's a story as old as New Brunswick. Yeah. When this province was first founded by 55 elite clergymen, military officers, and merchants, there was no opposition party in the government. So if you were an entrepreneur here in early New Brunswick and you wanted to start something, and you were saying, hey, government, if you did this for me, it would really help out, they would veto that if it didn't line their pockets. So it's a common uh, misconception that when blacks came through the, in 1812, through the Underground Railroad, many of them came, they ran back out of Canada because the racism was so great. Yep, but that's not just a black story. Many of the Acadian families, yes. Louisiana, many of the British families, many people ran from New Brunswick because it was just absent of opportunity across the board. So it's not only rare that we found over like 15 families that have stayed, because there was the mass exodus in, what was it, 1792, the Sierra Leone, and then the mass dispersion. Every single group of people that has immigrated to New Brunswick has had a mass exodus and out-migration is still an issue. So I always have to put a button in that anyone who stays here and builds, and people like Carol Howe, who have had a successful business for over 30 years, is like, that there's something to be said from a province where everyone assumes you have nothing and to still see these families thrive and work and be successful to this day and even it's it's just something amazing that's you know, a specific type of resistance is all that i was going to say to stay and be here for 30 years during all of that time so many people run screaming yeah. for good reason because you can go through umb and there's many people that we amplify in black history month yeah. who've gone through umb and they just couldn't find work as a teacher or they couldn't yes. find work so as a lawyer or they couldn't find work as you know anything so they have to go down south because yeah. they're the only places that will hire them for people to still be here and to be able for them to have their own personal archives to trace the great things their families have done, it's, it's a story that cannot be erased because I'm telling you and your audience, we are in the last generation of knowledge keepers. In 10 years, the people that are in Willow Grove, the people that are in Elm Hill, which is our version of Africville, they, the people that own those lands are going to pass, unfortunately, and it's two years, if they don't hand that down to a descendants or other families, the government snaps up those land deeds mm. that they gave them hundreds of years ago for fighting for the British side of the war against George Washington and the United States, and then the, it all goes back to them and our history is truly erased. And then we don't have the oral history, we don't have the land, and if you talk to Nova Scotians, their battle right now is the encroachment of government bylaws, bylaws and zoning on land that they've been given forever. They're being charged rent for land they own. They're fighting in court. We have a completely different problem. We don't even know that these we have these lands and the government just waits for our families to die out. And then in two years, they put a little thing on their website. And if no one reaches out and says, yeah, that's my grandmother's land, I'm the guarantee and the trustee of that, they just take it back. So that word needs to get out there. Yeah, to those no, families. this project changed my whole DNA and the things we have to fight for and bring people together on because we've had an amazing black community from the jump here. We built the roads, the churches, raised the kids. Like, it's not, we've been a part of the community. How do you think all this stuff got built? It was black labor. And for the this slow creeping erasure mixed with the national amnesia, I, I can't, 
I've lived through it through the education system. I don't want anyone else to not know that African descendants came here and did amazing things in the most fiercest of conditions, both socially and economically, and just environmentally through the crazy winters they had to endure mm. that wiped out many families that mm. don't have kids to tell these stories today. Wow, yeah, the encroachment of land by a ruling power is, uh, yes, you know, right in a lot of ways, a slow form of a genocide <laughs> of uh, what's happened here because they could inform the people, they could inform the young like you're trying to do that they can apply for this land to keep Part of what you do, like you, you are helping these, some of these generational families, and maybe the youth, maybe the grandparents hadn't even had a chance to talk to the, the younger generations and things like that to keep the legacy going, but you going to their houses helps build that up. And everyone, they bring out their deeds and they show like 200 years ago, this is our actual land, we're still on it. And everyone's always been amazed and I'm, I can't believe they still keep the paperwork and all the photocopies and everything. It's... Uh, I just can't stress enough how much it's changed my DNA and it's put me on a different planet now for advocacy wow. and community work. So continuing from that and the amazing work that you're doing with Still Here, can you tell us a little bit of all of the amazing accolades that you have going on? Because I mean, even behind the scenes you've said, I don't know them and I don't think I can keep up with you and the joke is I can't keep up with myself, but please let us know. I know there's the New Brunswick Black Artists Alliance. You've been here doing work at Music New Brunswick. There's so much going on. You're part of Africanthology where you wrote the preface for. Yes. And your poems were in there as well. Did you release your own book? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Poetry as well? Yeah, so. Tell us everything. Uh, yeah, it helped re tell us what you want to tell publish us. the Blacks in New Brunswick history book so yes. that we actually have a foundational document for anyone that wants to read the actual history of what happened to early black New Brunswickers. Uh, from that it went into telling my own family story with my memoir, mm -hmm. Social Oblivion, Raised Black in Canada, which has been well received. Uh, that got me to Africanthology, a collection of Canadian poets, George Eliot Clark, Afua mm -hmm. Cooper, Dwayne Morgan, real titans of industry, and for some reason, Tondaway McCarthy is in this best-selling anthology of uh, black Canadian poets, and we got to put in an essay and a poem, so not only do you get a flavor of what our style is creatively, but you get to hear a little of our history as we yeah. talk about what we're currently going through, Greg Frankson, Hats off. So there's so yeah. many shout, shout outs. So yeah. Greg Frankson is the reason Black Atlantic is named Black Atlantic. He came up with our name. What? He's the one who told me that Gary did the cover and introduced me to Gary. How did I not say Gary and, Weeks did the cover? And then Meredith Bat yeah. is the one who mailed me Blacks in New Brunswick with your new forward in it and then gave us the archives that back up your book. So like we're all here in this room because of those other people. <laughs> but there's no there's no way we wouldn't be like like this is all kismet because all of these people have put us together and like we were meant to be in this room. The list goes on. Uh I was I've been a national poetry judge for a CBC poetry contest. Uh it's won arts grants and awards. I there's so many like, and I, this isn't a, I just keep busy when, when I'm sitting in, even if nothing, no opportunities came to me. And when I was a kid, all I did was read books mm -hmm. and envision worlds in my head. 
So I don't need people to bring me opportunities to be able to build and create stuff. I naturally generate communities. And if you talk to any of my younger friends, my house is always the place to be because mm. I curate experiences so people have a good time. Deeply in my soul, I want everyone to win. Yeah. And that is not just a black thing. That is a, not just a New Brunswick thing or a Canadian thing. That is a Mother Earth thing mm. that I want all of us to do well not just humanity we can make sure everyone yeah. all life forms are doing well yeah and i truly believe that in my heart so yeah. when i'm you know doing documentaries with gary weeks or when i'm advocating to have august 1st be proclaimed emancipation celebration and the premier is honoring gary and i yeah. on the stage in new brunswick's day and then we turn that momentum into the emancipation celebration mm -hmm. which is a provincial event that celebrates the black history as three parts the first part we bring in those elders who tell about their life stories and the speakers then we go on a memorial walk for the people who have passed and then we have our celebration it's free food for anyone who wants to show up that day it was really intentional how we built the event so that that oral history and knowledge can be passed down so that collectively we move as one and as we think and contemplate the importance of the people around us and then we celebrate have food watch the kids play and then so you've also sorry ahead. i just want to say no, you've go also ahead. got the new brunswick black artist alliance and as we got to firsthand experience today your, tell me exactly your title with the Maritime Edit. I am the cultural correspondent with the Maritime Edit. And uh, yeah, uh, Gary Weeks and a bunch of other black yeah. artists, we co-funded the New Brunswick Black Artists Alliance to provide the platform to showcase and amplify black creatives because anytime I notice that there's a gap in what the organizations are offering and what people from the African diaspora are able mm -hmm. to get or are even aware of, I instantly place myself in the middle and say, all right, well, let's do something. Yeah. And years before, I was at a, an event on campus, and it was a black barbecue put on by Funke Ella Djembe, mm -hmm. and uh, I just went around with a notepad and said, hey, would you be interested? Are you creative? Would you be interested in an organization? And just pencil and paper just polled the community, and if they said yes, I'm like, all right. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. David Woods came to me and said, if you can fill a room full of eight people, I'll help you start this organization. And he's the one who started the Black Artist Network in Nova Scotia. Right. He's got the secret codes, the quilt exhibition yeah. that's going yeah. across Canada. Wonderful mentor of mine. When he said, you fill a room full of eight people, I'll help you start an organization. We had 12. And wow. we've been going strong ever since. We've three years running, Gallery on Queen. We have a exhibition where artists have gotten paid for their work. We do the first New Brunswick Black Film Festival. This is a Gary Weeks thing. I take no credit for this. Partnership with the UNB Art Center. And now we're uh, looking to do, like, touring all of these artworks from the Gallery on Queen and do a show to take them across Canada to just to flex New Brunswick excellence. New Brunswick excellence. Not just black New Brunswick, just New Brunswick excellence. Can we please flex a little on how great we've always been? That it drives me wild that none of us in any from any heritage show like, we're awesome here. They don't know we're here and you're putting us on the map. Slowly, I think a lot of us are, but the work that you're doing is incredible. And the passion when you speak is just so energizing. Yes. It just energizes the room. It just uh, wakes people up. Um, but didn't you also yeah. release your own book? So yeah. did we talk yeah, about that at the beginning? Yeah. Social Oblivion and yes. Raised Black in Canada? You mentioned that already? Yes. Okay. 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 And working on my next poetry book, 
that uh, is going to come out that just talks about these last four years and how crazy it's been. Because I don't, mm. I don't want my persona of the work I've been able to do to outpace just the person who likes to just read, play video games, mm. hang out with the cat. And for other people, when I started this advocacy work, I was talking to L. Jones, another mentor of me. Everyone knows who L. Jones is, former poet laureate in Nova Scotia. And I said, you know, I really want to start helping out in the community. And she said, you have to read the autobiography of Burnley Rocky Jones. He's our version of Martin Luther King in Canada, raised in Truro, Nova Scotia. His younger sister, Lynn Jones, is still a titan of organizing in the community. And I read that book, read about how the RCMP watched his house burn down twice, read about how he did a freedom of information request, and they said they were watching him, read about how when the Supreme Court asked for them to go in, they got chairs for the black community and they locked them out. And it was Lynn Jones who demanded that they had the right reservation. He was going to talk to people to uh, advocate for rights in Nova Scotia, he had a group of six people there with them. They intentionally put two chairs in the room, so they had to decide who was going to sit and be the leaders and who was going to stand. They all decided to stand, and they just put the chairs to the side. When he ran for uh, a political representative of his area, the government literally paid other people in the community to run against him to separate the vote. Like, this is all documented in his book that in Atlantic Canada, this is how the government goes against us when we try and grow as a community. So when I read that, I knew, I knew right then what was going to happen. So it's, it's all about breaking bread with your friends and your brothers and your sisters and not to get it twisted. So you have to document your journey as you go so the next person can know what they're walking into. Yeah. This yeah. is a war zone, and you only stay humble through your friends and your family and being able to have people that you can talk to and vent with and just have fun with. you got to keep the love with you. Absolutely. Wow. Are we ready to pivot to speaking of fun and love, although I don't know if that's what's in, in your poetry, but I do love your poetry. Right. And you have a, I have some for us, which I didn't even expect, so I'm really excited. Please, show me how talented you are. <laughs> this is one of the poems from the upcoming book and exhibition, yes. Sneak Peek, Still Here. <clears throat> this is called the Royal Vow. In 1765, there was a war. The screams of revolution caught fire across British America. The king needed more bodies to defend his empire, but the enslaved Africans wished only for escape. And so there was a promise. The deal was made through blood and broken bones that should any enslaved African fight for the crown, they would taste freedom, feel liberty, walk on their own land, and live the dreams of valued British citizens. They need only trade their shackles for guns, knives, need only stab, shoot, and kill. It seemed the meat of liberty was to be chewed off the bones of war washed down with their oppressor's blood, and it was only then the enslaved could have their humanity. That was the promise. Wow. 
Goosebumps. It's, it's just so descriptive. Yeah. I could see that. I was that. there. Ten history books I read <laughs> to diffuse, and on the other side is going to be the actual listings and documents from the provincial archives that prove that these things were given to those black families. And uh, just so you know, it's, it's not just poetry. It's history. Right. It's yep. we're fusing all of this and the visuals of those who are still here. We're hitting them on many fronts, and we're taking it as far as people will let it, and then a bit further, because I don't care what they'll let us do. Make your own rules. Yeah. I never thought about it like that, you know? Like, the, you know, if you agree to fight for the British, you know, you'll get your freedom. But what they're really saying is, like, yeah, you, you, you're exchanging, you're kill, you have to murder, you have to kill human beings, which you might not have wanted to do if you wanted to yeah. even have a taste of freedom. Yeah. Like, Murder for, murder, murder for us. Murder for us. Murder, like no matter what your morals are, murder for us or live enslaved for the rest of your life. And uh, like, what kind of a deal is that? It's it's a terrible deal, and especially when they got here, as you know, their land yeah, was the on unfarmable land. It was smaller lots. They weren't. Their tools were rusted over. The blankets they got were full of holes. Like mm -hmm. trying to survive a winter was miserable. And I have to say, this whole black loyalist thing. Everyone who was given their freedom, they were juried in so even if you fought not everyone who fought what? got the title of black loyalist there was a jury of people who chose who got what? to be free and on that jury were people from george washington's army so former the people who formally enslaved you yeah. got to choose if you'd be free to be able to even leave like the things you read in these history books are in Saints. Oh, we got to start even, adding that to the talk. <laughs> even when we're on erasing the truth about our, our Canadian yeah, British heritage and history, we're still oh, erasing. We're still yeah. not telling the whole story. It's, it's, and you had to dig deep. Deep. And these are, whenever you're reading these history books, you'll go through 500 pages to find two sentences <laughs> about black history. Okay. And it just blows your mind that, yeah, of course the deal wasn't anyone who picks up a gun instantly gets freedom and land. They don't have that much land. The whole reason New Brunswick was started is because the people in Halifax didn't survey the land for the rich merchant and military generals. Mm -hmm. It was all forced when they got here. So they said, you're too far away to govern. I say this is a hilarious joke. When George Washington came over, he said, the British government's too far away to deal with us. We're going to do it ourselves. And the British the government said, no, we're going to war. Then in New Brunswick, New Brunswick says when it was Nova Scotia, Halifax is too far away to go over. So then they do their mini revolt and get New Brunswick. So it's like n no one in the history of North America has ever enjoyed the governance system that's in place. It's don't. just a history of micro revolts and taking ownership yeah. of your local area. And were they deemed terrorists in this process? Like were yeah, they called fact, terrorists in, in their revolt to get uh, this land? They were called refugees early on. It wasn't. We put loyalists on to romanticize what it was back then. Yeah, and so it, it, everything's yeah. mud. Loyalist isn't accurate. Yeah, I, I've heard the call for it to be called like black arrivees uh, yeah. and stuff like that, not loyalists and stuff. Yeah. Amazing. Interesting. Okay. Things you learn. Wow. Wow. Well, wow. we know that we're going to have you back to promote. Uh, you've got stuff going on for Black History Month, and then looking forward to to still here. Before we wrap up, I want to thank Gary Weeks, who's been doing all of our tech stuff behind the scenes. You've been, so uh, you're such a blessing. Thank you so much. I, I want to just take a second to say, like, thank you for welcoming us sort of in, like, I feel like I thought I was a black New Brunswicker and then it turned out I wasn't. And now I feel like I've only become by learning so much from 
you, your friends, your family, your lovely mother. Um, it's an honor to get to listen to you speak and to work alongside you in this and to feel like I call you, can call you a colleague and a friend. And it's honestly been an absolute pleasure. And it's been great hanging out with you over the last couple days and properly getting to know you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll say, like, I knew a lot about what you've done and what you do, but I've just learned so much more today about <laughs> the, the land that I'm in uh, right now. Yeah. So. So thank you for being thank here. You for being and, uh, here. Yeah. Thank forward. you for letting me share the story and to hopefully give other people roots who watch yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. See you Done. next week. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>